Hi, I'm Jason Sachs. Welcome to this week's episode of Classic Comics Cavalcade. This week's guest is Bill Shelley, author of James Warren, Empire of Monsters, The Man Behind Creepy, Vampirella, and Famous Monsters. For those of you who know about Warren Publications and Jim Warren, I think you'll find this to be a really entertaining conversation, telling some of the backstory behind the uh, fascinating history of that comics line. For those of you who don't know about it, I think this is a great intro that will intrigue you, make you interested in reading Bill's book, as well as uh, make you interested in seeking out some of this great semi-forgotten comics material. I think most everyone knows Vampirella, but how many classic, creepy, eerie book stories have you ever read? Believe me, they are quite wonderful, and I had quite a wonderful time talking to Bill. As you can hear, um, I really look up to Bill. He's a, a real kind of mentor to me in the comics history business. So I hope you enjoy the interview. As usual, show notes are available at comicscavalcade.tumblr.com. Please leave feedback on iTunes and enjoy the show. Bill, thanks for joining Classic Comics Cavalcade. It's good to be here, Jason. Thank you. Uh, you know, I've been a fan of your writing for a long time, and I was really delighted to read your book about Jim Warren. Uh, for people who don't know much about Warren magazines, can they give us an overview of who he is and what kind of work he published? Well, James Warren published magazines from 1957 to 1982. He started doing an imitation of Playboy called After Hours, that only lasted about a year. Then he got the idea to do Famous Monsters of Filmland, and he published that the whole time he was in business as a publisher and added other magazines as time went on. What makes him an important historical figure beyond the fact that he obviously uh, was involved in the business for so long? I think what makes him an important historical figure is has to do with the coming of the Comics Code in 1955. At that point, that meant that mainstream American comic books were even more for children than they'd been before, and there really couldn't be an American comic book that was for adults anymore. So when Warren came along with Creepy and Eerie, he was publishing stories that were for a slightly older audience, and he was the only game in town for that. It w until the uh, comics code began to deteriorate, and the direct market came along in the early 80s, um, really the, the Warren magazines were the only comics that were available in normal story form uh, in America. Now, for adults. Now, let me, uh, let me add that the adults uh, obviously could also get underground comics, but underground comics are a very different animal and they're not narrative-driven like comics, and they're a whole other thing. And Warren was around before, during, and after the underground, com underground comic book phase. Yeah, and we'll get to in a bit how he was involved in the underground comics right, tangentially for a while, because um, his involvement in that is really intriguing. One of the things I really enjoyed about the book is you give a portrait of Jim Taubman, as he was known, Jimmy Taubman, as his family called him, when he was a kid. And it seems like he was creative from his earliest days and had ambitions very early on. Well, a lot of people don't realize that Jim Warren Taubman was his full name, was an artist from the time he was a little kid and really thought he would be an artist. Even when he graduated from college, he was talking about being an architect or even doing interior decorating, of all things. Uh, hard to believe so that. Yeah. Um, he did cartoons all through uh, high school for the school paper. He was the head of the uh, annual in high school. He designed the class ring. 
And he was an artist of some ability, but he never used it in his magazines, except for when he designed logos. But otherwise, he didn't ever develop his art to the point where he would publish his own finished art in any of his magazines. I think it's funny that the one time he had his own original art published was in Life magazine. Right. Well, yeah, that was when he was trying to figure out uh, what to do starting an ad agency when he got out of the military. And he was just trying to get some attention to get anybody to pay attention to him as a young man. As we all do when we're in our early 20s, you know, we're just trying to reach out and figure out what we can get going. I love that image that you were printing in the book. It just looks like something that maybe from a Basil Wilberton cartoon where the editor machine kind of publishes an issue of life. Yeah. One of the things you talk about is he just developed this very pugilistic approach to his life early on. As a kid who grew up not in the rough areas of, of Philadelphia, but definitely in a area of Philadelphia where you had to fight for yourself, it seemed like he was always ready to, to uh, kind of put himself out there. Well, he did grow up as a small child in South Philly, which is one of the tougher areas. But when he got into later grade school, his family did uh-huh. move north to a, a mostly Jewish neighborhood called Olney. And there it was a little more like standard suburb, but still the kids uh, got into a lot of fistfights and uh, Warren had a big mouth, I'm sure, from the day. <laughs> you can imagine. I, you know, he, he always had it, so I'm sure it, he had it when he was a boy. And he also wasn't the biggest kid. He never became very tall. Later he did get to be 5'9 or 5'10, but uh, as a boy he was smaller than some. So he have got kicked around the, the playground a little bit. And it seemed like that attitude kind of followed him all through his life. He was always a little pugilistic, always ready for an argument. Yep. In fact, uh, that was partly he told me when I interviewed him back in 2014, he told me that he, he took on this pugilistic personality in order to keep the sharks at bay, the sharks that were hovering around in the New York publishing business. Because he said those people, even your friends, would stab you in the back practically in the publishing business. It was so tough. And so he created this personality that was partly show, partly to, to make people feel like they were not going to get away with anything with him and to not see him as a vulnerable in any way. But it was so ingrained that I have to believe it was more than just show. Mm-hmm. I believe that he defined himself and, well, defined himself as someone that would get the first word in, would get the last word in, and would be someone who you had to contend with. If you're going to deal with them, you couldn't just have a casual conversation. You had to contend with Jim Warren. So we talked a little bit earlier about how he had a kind of a public and private persona and how, in a way, it was more difficult than some to write a biography of someone who was kind of hidden from people. Do you feel like that grew out of his childhood? I think so. In the process of writing this book, I found that I was able to discover that he was a warm human being and a, a, could be a very nice man and a good friend when he wanted to. Mm-hmm. In fact, I met him in 1973 in New York, and he told me that he was looking for someone for the production department. Why don't I go over and interview with Bill Dubay for a job? And he was very nice to me. And when I talked to him about Harvey Kurtzman, again, he was... Just he can be he can be very nice and it feels sincere. It doesn't feel phony or put on. And yet you have to reconcile that with his pugilistic provocateur side. And I think 
the reality is that he was not easy, not an easy mix of a personality, even inside. I think even inside, it wasn't one thing. It was more than one thing. He, a man really with demons in some ways. Hmm. So how did you build up your the history of his childhood and also kind of your sense of his personality. I did my due diligence as a researcher. You check the census records. You check from anything you can find. I interviewed people from the high school where I went to high school. One of them was, was Arnold Roth, who he went to high school with. Another was a, a man who isn't cited in the book, who provided me pictures from the newspaper and the class ring that he did mm. and others. And then I consulted other interviews he's done where he said a little here and a little bit there. Definitely that was the most challenging part to complete. Now, I want to make clear that at my fingertips when I was writing this book, even though Jim Warren refused to be interviewed for it, I had unpublished interviews with him that were extensive, and I was able to find out all kinds of things that have never been published before about Warren, his views about things, his interests, quirky aspects of his personality, and his childhood. He talked about some things from his childhood in these interviews mm. that no one has seen before. So by no means is everything in this book uh, from some other published interview. In fact, I had two major published interviews and another one that was also important, unpublished, excuse me, to refer to. So there's a lot of Jim Warren in this book that's new. And allowed you to kind of triangulate the truth in his stories. If he repeats them over and over, then there's a lot more truth than kind of shares his story once or twice. Well, yeah, exactly. Because he was one to exaggerate. Yeah. He was, uh, but his, one of his close friends said, fully half of what Jim Warren says is true. <laughs> <laughs> so, in other words, even a close friend admits that Jim struggles with the truth. Because he just wants to entertain and he wants, maybe he is building himself up, but I think more than anything, he just wants to be colorful. He, yeah. he wants to be interesting. Mm -hmm. I don't think he thinks he's fooling anybody that we think he's a, you know, Hugh Hefner or something like that. We know that he didn't become rich like Hefner in, in the man he most admired. I mean, right. Hefner was his role model. So I think he does it just to entertain. Yeah, I love the stories about how he wanted to live Hefner's life. The story about Jane Fonda leaving his apartment one night <laughs> when she was quite young. and uh, So he got to work with a lot of people who are in, important both in comics and science fiction history. Had a kind of lifelong, I guess, love-hate relationship with famous sci-fi editor Forrest Ackerman. I would say that, and, and I, I think that it was because he knew that he couldn't do the magazine without Forrest. Mm -hmm. He was. He, so Akron without... was the editor of uh, Famous Monsters from Los Angeles, while Warren was in New York and Philadelphia. Right. Ackerman had all the stills, something like fifty thousand stills, he claimed from fantastic films and horror films, and he was to write the articles. But what people don't realize is that actually, though Ackerman gets full editorial credit, Jim Warren, in many ways, co-edited those issues, because. He was the one who selected which articles that Forey wrote which would be used, and he rejected articles. He would cut them. He'd make them shorter. He would reject stills. He would he would tell Forey to stop talking about himself so much in the magazine. And um, he was fully engaged and involved with Famous Monsters, particularly in the first decade. I love the anecdotes about the early issues of Famous Monsters that had articles like Inside Darkest Ackerman, where one writer came, sent a letter saying, 
The one thing I like about other monster magazines that I don't eternally have to read about Forrest Ackerman. <laughs> well, Forey was a bit of a narcissist, but he was also a lovely man in many ways. And he really, Jim Warren wouldn't have been prepared to do Famous Monsters without him. And it was Forey who showed him the template for Famous Monsters back in 19, fall of 57. A magazine from Europe was completely made up of photos from the old classic Universal horror films. And this game Warren the idea for famous monsters and they, they hatched it right then and there while they were eating um, blueberry pancakes somewhere in New York and so they, they co-conceived the magazine together and it would not have been possible without Ackerman but the relationship let's say it became strained over the years and Forey kept expecting wanted more and more money all the time and Jim of course probably couldn't keep up even if even as well as the magazine was going keep up with what Forey wanted sometimes and gradually that relationship soured a bit in the end that actually Forey was fired from Famous Monsters like one month before it was ended by the new people that were going to take over because at that point Warren just didn't care anymore that's later on toward Mm -hmm. the end of his story as a publisher so because of the pretty tremendous success of Famous Monsters Warren was able to connect with Harvey Kurtzman for Help Magazine which was kind of a dream for Warren Well, he dreamed about working with his idols. He wanted to work with Harvey Kurtzman. He loved the war comics from EC that Harvey Kurtzman had done. He wanted to work with Frank Frazetta because he was a fan of Frazetta's fantasy art. He wanted to work with uh, all kinds of people that he really admired. Will Eisner was another one. And in Mm -hmm. the course of his career, he was able to do that. But Kurtzman was his first big signing, so to speak, because it was only two years after Famous Monsters started when he and Kurtzman decided to publish Help magazine. And they essentially co-owned the magazine in many ways. Harvey had complete creative control. Warren handled the financial side of it. And he loved watching Harvey work. He was fascinated watching Harvey at the drawing board create these things. You know, when you watch somebody who has this kind of talent do what they do, it's like magic. It's like uh, the hand that goes across the piece of paper in the cartoon and suddenly you have a whole scene that appears under the artist's hand Mm -hmm. and you don't know how it happened. So Warren really enjoyed that up to a certain point, but they were never meant to get along very well. Harvey was way too quirky and creative. Warren was too controlling and dominant. In some ways, they were opposite personalities. Yeah. Never in a million years would it have made, did it make a, a good... Re- now, sometimes opposites work well together. Mm-hmm. But in this case, it was a matter of who was going to control what was in the magazine. And Warren simply, even though he said he would let Harvey, he still felt like, well, I can still suggest things, can't I, Harvey? Mm-hmm. And then he would just pelt him with suggestions and really pressure him in other ways. So finally, that magazine ended in 1965, but there were 26 issues and... As you know, Jason, because you've read my book, uh, he hired a very famous uh, woman today in America to be her fir- uh, in her first editing job, Gloria Steinem. She was Harvey's his assistant editor. And Harvey and everybody, were they were all fascinated with Gloria because she was just somebody who just had special something in her, like a glow. And the ability to talk to people, and she contributed a fair amount to help success by lining up celebrities for the covers. Because they had big celebrities for those days, Jerry Lewis and people like that, on the covers. 
Uh, there weren't, they didn't come up, use artistic covers till later in the run. But Help didn't work out so well, and neither did a magazine called Spacemen he did after Help that was about uh, old science fiction uh, serials and things like that that Forey wanted to do. In fact, nothing of his other magazine ideas worked until he came up with something called Creepy. The origins of Creepy I had never really known about, but it's kind of a complicated way that it ended up coming to him. It did, and it's just like in the, when I did the Kirsten book, I had to figure out who, who invented MAD and come down with as much information as would ever be known and was ever knowable. And in this case, I wanted as much information it was that would ever be knowable about the creation of Creepy, because there's two people that claim the creation of it, Larry Ivey and another man named Russ Jones. And the reality is that Russ became the editor, even though Warren had essentially promised that to Larry. Uh, it was I had to unwind this whole story, and I think it's quite interesting. It would be too detailed for me to go through the, the ins and outs of it here, but suffice to say that I think I got to the bottom of that story. The main idea is that uh, the idea was brought to Jim Warren to do a, a black and white magazine of horror comics. And because the magazine wasn't under the comics code, he could do that without fearing censorship of any kind. So Warren agreed to do it and ended up publishing something like 32 people uh, that are now in the Comic Book Hall of Fame in the pages of Creepy, Eerie, and Vampirella. I mean, you're talking about top top artists in the comic book field and comic book history appeared in Warren magazines. Some of the most beautiful work Steve Ditko ever did, Prime Alex Toth, you single out Russ Heath in your book. Right, I think Heath did some of his finest work, Al Williamson, many, many others, uh, Crandall, uh, John Severin, and the list goes on. Yeah. Richard Corbin. I think the Crandall Cask of Amontillado adaptation is one of the best comics I've ever read. Literally one of the best single stories I've ever read. I think that's one of his top five stories ever published by Warren in one of his magazines. It's so beautiful. And like Steve Ditko, Reed Crandall did his very best work for Mm -hmm. for Warren uh, on Creepy and Eerie. And um, so what a tremendous thing for him in the latter days of his career to have an opportunity to kind of find a full flowering and a new a new style and and he received a lot of praise and i'm sure it meant a lot to read so you were talking about the tall tales and legends of jim warren one of the quotes you have is i visited jim warren at the 1963 world science fiction convention in washington dc it was there ivy said that warren emerged from the bathroom wearing only a towel and announced i'll pay one million dollars for the person who gives me an idea for a magazine i can publish well, and I, yeah, and he got that idea, and, and there was no million dollars involved, let me, yeah. tell, let me tell you. But, you know, that was just an, him, and that's very much his bombastic personality. Mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of Blazing Combat, maybe the third greatest war comic ever published after Frontline Combat and Two Fists of Tales. But that didn't end up being a financial success for him. No, it didn't. It was a success to Steam. It's one of those magazines people are still talking about now. And it was collected all into a single volume that by a publisher and did very well. And it's because of the quality of the art and the stories. All the stories virtually were written by Archie Goodwin, who was extremely important to the success of Warren's comic book magazines. And it was Goodman's first job away in comics. I mean, he'd been working at Red Book in publishing, doing assistant editor stuff, essentially nothing. Mm-hmm to becoming the full editor after the first few issues of Creepy and Eerie. And um, Goodwin 
was somebody who attracted many of these top artists because he had such a likable personality. He treated them well. He he picked stories that were tailored to their abilities. And we should never forget that Goodwin, like Forrey Ackerman, Archie Goodwin was a key figure in Warren's success. Just one of the most important figures in comics history in some ways. So what are some of your favorites from that time? You mentioned a couple. Do you have some other favorite stories that you kind of went back and rediscovered? As oh, part of the absolutely. absolutely. I mean, my favorite was, even though he fiddled with the story a bit, was Reed Crandall's art job on the Telltale Heart. Mm-hmm. I, that, for some reason, the way those pages are laid out is just, are just tremendous. And the Ditko stories that he did in wash work, where he used a, a brush he never had done before. And after a few awkward attempts, he finally got that down and did some really superb stuff. But what I really discovered, Jason, is that the 70s of Warren was like, if the 60s was their golden age, the 70s was their silver age. Mm -hmm. Because the 70s issues of Creepy and Eerie, the latter ones that were edited by Bill Dubay, and most of the ones that, all the ones that uh, were edited by Louise Jones, now Simonson, are so very good. I mean, you have horror writers like Bruce Jones. Bruce Jones is just is a superb writer. And then you have him, people doing his artwork on his stories, by like uh, Bernie Wrightson and others. Certainly, the story Jennifer that is drawn by Bernie Wrightson is a classic, where he uh, a man is drawn to a misshapen girl and tries to take care of her and 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 she forces him to become her sex slave mm-hmm. and he can't escape mm-hmm. i mean that's who thinks of these things right bruce jones uh-huh and same way with the story about two people um that are out in the middle of the ocean uh, stranded after a boat sinks with just a life preserver and story about atomic war so really what happened was the magazine moved into a kind of a twilight zone area or away from the classic monsters of the 60s and much more into just freeform horror and more adult horror mm-hmm. in the 70s. So there are there's a story called Evo Destruction, I believe it's called, or Point of... Gosh, it's in here. I'm looking at a copy of Creepy 83. And Creepy 83 is my choice for the greatest issue of Creepy in the 70s. It was published in October 76. And the story I'm thinking of is a a Bruce Jones story called Process of Elimination. Oh, yeah. And it's about a man who comes home and for some reason is killing each member of his family. And this is just inexplicable till you realize that he has heard that an atomic bomb is going to be exploded in close proximity and he has to save them from from suffering. Now, this is not uh, material for... Well, young readers could read that, but the point is that there was nothing like this on the stands at that time. And kids couldn't get, you know, kids love horror stories, and they love to be scared, um, particularly just going through adolescence. You know, that's why they all wear the skulls on their T-shirts and everything. It's very popular when you're 12 and 13. These magazines filled an important niche for a whole generation or two, I would say two generations, of baby boomers and people that came after the baby boomers, for these kind of stories. Mm-hmm. That is an amazing issue. It's got two stories illustrated by Carmine Infantino. It's got a new Al Williamson story, which is very rare at that point. Right. Um, it's just loaded with outstanding material. It's got that story in deep which, with Cor- that Corbin did where they're stranded out in the ocean. 
And then you just have so many good artists in this issue. You know, we're talking about Bernie Wrightson also. It has even has a Frazetta cover, yeah. albeit a reprint of a Frazetta cover. But it's, I like it that this great issue also has a cover by Frank Frazetta. So one of the things I learned from your book, and I've been reading Warren magazines as long as I've been reading comics, at least as a, a, a more mature reader, is I always assume them getting... They, so they imported a whole slew of artists from Spain or worked through an agency for a whole slew of artists from Spain. And my assumption was always they, they signed those artists because they were cheap, but they were actually more expensive than the American artists. They just felt like they were getting a higher level of quality from them. Well, I think what happened was that the agent that brought him... The uh, who owned the studio that provided these Spanish artists also struck a deal with Warren to sell the magazine in overseas markets. So Warren was getting a windfall of money from foreign sales at this time, and it allowed him to raise his rates. First, he was maybe only paying $40 a page or something like that for for stories, which was not very much in the early 70s. It wasn't awful, but it was not very much. But soon he was up over $100 a page and so on because he had this foreign uh, revenues coming in. So not only did it help him get these bull art, uh, art from these Spanish artists, he was able to also get the money to pay them more. So it was a win-win. What well, gave him finally gave him the chance to live the Hugh Hefner type life too? It kind of, yeah. He had that beautiful house in the Hamptons where he'd have fireworks and guests staying over, and the scale model of the Sopworth Camel airplane. Right, it's beachfront property, and invite you know celebrities over, and he did know some celebrities, and it was painted yellow, which Bill DuBay said was very significant because he thought yellow is is the most optimistic color, hmm. and and also the, uh, be the most positive color. And Warren claimed that he designed it. I don't know that he designed it from the ground up, but he certainly put his stamp on it, and it had a pool, and then, of course, the beachfront. And he would land on it, and he'd rent a helicopter and land on the beach to impress everybody when he'd bring in somebody new who's important. He had a lot of fun out there. He wasn't mortgaged to the hilt. It seems like he had earned it from the international rights to the book. Well, I mean, I don't know all the details of his finances, but certainly he uh, was doing well, very well in the 70s. The magazine was selling. People have said that, you know, the magazine probably wasn't selling that well in those later years. Actually, it sold very consistently and well. Uh, famous monsters got a real kick in the pants when Star Wars came out, mm-hmm. and and, and uh, other films of that ilk, which created interest in the magazine, and they catered to those fans, and that brought up a bit of a fading situation with Famous Monsters toward the end, but um, the magazines all did very well until the end of the 70s. And he was furious about Marvel trying to get their piece of the market, or really anyone trying to get their piece of that market. Oh, well, he he hated his competitors. He hated Stan Lee. <laughs> I mean, Stan Lee was his. If you put, if you said Stan Lee to him, you, you know, you'd get an explosive reaction. <laughs> I'm not, not sure why it, it, Stan bothered him so much, but he did. And and yet, when Marvel put out all those magazines in the 70s, the Warren books did fine. Mm-hmm. It didn't hurt them. Now, now maybe he Warren postulated there would have been growth that they didn't get to have. But it seems to me that when you have consistent sales all through all along, you have to say that it, the Marvel magazines didn't really take too much away from Warren, if anything. Of course, he finally got his dream of publishing The Spirit by Will Eisner. Oh, boy. And, you know, Warren was definitely tough to get along with. But when I talked to Dennis Kitchen, who is now Will Eisner's agent for the, for the Eisner estate, 
He said that Warren never said bad things about Jim. He said, yeah, he could be tough to deal with, but he always felt he got a, a fair financial shake from him. He was treated well. And because and Warren didn't ever want to look bad in Will's eyes. He really looked up to him. He absolutely worshipped him. And, and Eisner was a better idol for him than Harvey Kurtzman. Because uh-huh. Eisner was a, a successful businessman in many ways. Mm-hmm. And um, But the Spirit magazine, when you look at the way he reproduced those pages in black and white, they touched them up. And maybe the purists don't like that some of the splash panels are kind of touched up a bit to fit on the page and to, to use the format better. But they look just beautiful. Never has Eisner's work been printed more beautifully when it was in black and white, I think, than in the Warren magazine. So the, unfortunately, sales just eventually began to flag. And so while Warren had, had kind of stolen Eisner from Dennis Kitchen to do the magazine, finally Eisner was able to go back and work for Dennis. But when Warren did steal Eisner, he did buy, buy up all of Kitchen's back stock. Right. Of the first two issues of the Underground comic. Uh, which he eventually sold out, you mentioned. Yeah, which he sold out. So I think it was a big thing in his life that he worked with Will Eisner. So from my standpoint, as a fan, I feel like the line started going downhill with the launch of the magazine 1984. felt like a lot of that work was more pandering, a lot sleazier, and it just felt like a new editorial ethic took over about 1979 or so well i think 1984 i think was 77 or maybe it was 78 when it finally came out i think you're absolutely right what happened was that warren got all involved in promoting a movie starring vampirella and so he didn't pay so much attention didn't have time to pay so much attention to the magazine so he wanted somebody he felt he had confidence in to be running them and he handed virtual control over to bill dubay and dubay did a pretty good job with the horror comics but when it came to a science fiction comic book his he just went off the rails and 1984 is there's some good art in it but not much not too much i mean it's mostly the spanish artists but the stories are really uh, unpleasant, and there's all kinds of uh, uh, homophobia and sexism and this and that. They're really, uh, and every issue had in the letter column would have readers writing in saying, this stuff is gross, please change it, and Dubay would, wouldn't change it. And his, his close right-hand man, Jim Stenstrom, told me that he told him, Bill many times that he should change that, and he just couldn't get through to him. So finally, Stenstrom left. He said I, he wouldn't work for him anymore. So Dubay's control of 84, and then when Louise Jones quit in seven, at the end of 79 as editor, Dubay had to come in and run the whole line again. And at that point, it seemed like things just started to crumble, and Warren wasn't around. Warren was mysteriously missing. So I want to talk a little more about Dubay, because to me, he's a figure I know almost nothing about, but it seems like he was almost more divisive than Warren in some ways. Oh, he was. With Warren, you had the, the pugilist, but you had the warm guy, too. Mm-hmm. Dubay was just not... He was the pugilist, the controlling figure. Okay. He It kind of brought out his dark side to have all that power. And um, he was always like to have people um, off-kilter working for him, have them keep them guessing, make them do things over, and exercise his power to show that he had the power. 
This is the picture that I picked up from the people I talked to. Now, I wasn't there, so I have to rely on the witnesses, the people that worked with him, and some of them worked and, fine with him. And he's been gone for a number of years now. He is, and I, I met Bill Dubay. In fact, I interviewed with Bill Dubay back in 73, but that's another story. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, he was a, a, a dark figure, and unfortunately, um, that's kind of the dark stain on Warren's legacy. Hmm. You feel like it was, yeah. Uh, 1984 magazine. Especially. 1984, yeah. He did the Rook. That was all right. And um, and some of the later stories, when he, in the early like in 1980 and so forth, were pretty good. But by then they were trying to save money because the sales were beginning to drop, and so they were forced to use scripts that they wouldn't have used. They had, had to go through back bins full of old rejected scripts and try to make something of them, mm -hmm. and. It was it, it became harder and harder to put out a quality magazine because they were being asked to use substandard material uh, in 1981 and 1982. Uh, the, Warren simply uh, had seemed like he'd almost washed his hands of the magazines. Yeah, it's interesting what you say about how he kind of wanted to retire by the time he was 50. And you talk a bit about uh, Harlan Ellison's suit against him, Ackerman being fired. You allude to some depression Warren and it just seemed like everything just kind of drifted off also the changing times just made it more challenging to put out work like that well he needed absolutely needed newsstand if, if in the comic book stores that were opening up in the late 70s and early 80s his book wouldn't have been as strong there as it would be to the general public mm -hmm. I think at that point I think that he was old news to the comic fans that were going to the specialty shops and I don't think he could he couldn't survive just going strictly on that. And as newsstand distribution dropped, his sales dropped. And by the end, I think that actually his sales had gotten down to almost 50% of what they'd been just a few years earlier. Mm -hmm. By the end. Yeah, I remember that well. Actually, I, I used to buy every issue, and then the at the end, I was only buying like the special issues they were putting out with like all Williamson reprints. They're all reprints. Yeah. Yeah. There's some nice Alex Toth issue. There's probably a Wrightson issue. There's, a, I don't know if there's a Ditko issue, but there was a, a lot of reprinted material. That was the other thing. They were relying on the reprints. So one of the things I liked about the book too is it has a story arc, a little <laughs> romance at the beginning, and then it kind of comes back at the end. I'm not sure if you want to spoil that or not. But. Well, I don't, but I think you hit on something I would like to mention briefly, and that is that, you know, when I write these books, I write them almost like a novel. Somebody said that there's something called a nonfiction novel, and that's kind of what I'm doing, except I'm not making up any conversations that people had. But when I have documentation, I, I try to make almost make it feel like you're there when I can. And, and also the story pulls you through. The idea is that there's a narrative thrust to pull you from the beginning to the end. And a lot of people have told me that this book is too short. And it's 350 pages, but <laughs> but they, they want more. And I take that as a compliment because obviously if they were having a hard time getting through it, uh, they wouldn't be saying that. No, it's quite a bit shorter than the Kurtzman book, right? Yeah, it's about uh, 300 pages shorter. Well, the manuscript was about 50% as long as the Kurtzman okay. manuscript. Uh, but yeah, I mean, to me, the thing is it's a very readable book, too. It's not dry fact. It, it's told in a way that kind of brings the reader along. I think the best comparison is maybe Sean House's uh, History of Marvel Comics. You know, it, it's an enjoyable read just in terms of someone telling you stories about an interesting figure from the past. Thank you. So how did writing about Jim Warren contrast with writing about Harvey Kurtzman or John Stanley or Otto Binder? 
I guess I've become a biography specialist now, even though I've written other kinds of books. The, the thing is, they're all, these people are exceptional people, and so their personalities are very, very different. And it's quite interesting to engage with someone like Otto Binder, who wrote for Jim Warren, by the way, who is a very loving, open guy and family-oriented. Then writing for somebody like John, about John Stanley, who did the Little Lulu stories. And even though he was wonderful at Little Lulu, there's a simmering uh, darkness there, and it's kind of an anger there in some of the in him because he had that Irish well, had Irish background and he had some drinking issues. So he was a darker figure. Whereas Kurtzman, it's more of a sad story in the sense that here you have someone who's a g- true genius who walked away from his greatest achievement and was never able to find that kind of success again. So that was a story that had tragic a tragic side to it. Mm-hmm. So you really get to explore the, these people's lives and that they take you in different ways. Well, yeah, and oftentimes, I mean, I... I I get to interview people, if not them, I get to interview people that, you know, like their family members, their sons and different people like that. And I get information that's, I I won't work on a book unless I have material that's never been published before. It's true of this Warren book. Even though we have the Warren Companion, which is wonderful, absolutely wonderful, this book is not the same material that's in the Warren Companion. There are some quotes that I reference from there, but the point is I try to do something new with every book. Otherwise, why do it? Why just uh, regurgitate stuff that's been done before? When you're trying to do a biography, you want to bring people, make that person come alive, if, if you can, for the reader. Yeah, how was it writing or revising your memoir? <laughs> well, yes, I did do. For a uh, sense of wonder. Yeah. I mean, that was a different kind of a, a approach, too. Well, see, the thing is, the original sense of wonder was ended when I was 22. It was, an, it was about my fandom days. So when I decided I wanted to write a book that took the fandom date when I left fandom up to the present days and my current experience in fandom, and I sort of complete the story, I just took the first book, essentially, and used that as the first half of this new memoir, but I added a lot of material to the first part because I wanted to, it's franker, it's more adult, it's uh, more revealing, and uh, I, I, I didn't want it to be really ju- just about fandom, I wanted it to go a little deeper than that. And I think I think that book has really connected uh, with a lot of people, and I get letters from people from all over the world about it, and you wouldn't think so because, mm. you know, why would people be interested in me? But it's not really about me. It's about a journey a person went on to find their creativity and to become a fully realized person as a writer, an artist, or at least a writer. And and a lot of people are going on those journeys. Yeah. A lot of people can relate to that. It's yeah. not just all about how great I am. It certainly isn't because I'm not great. I'm just someone who found my niche and was able to get to my goal. And I hope other people can too. And maybe maybe that book has helped some people. I don't know. I just enjoy, from from my standpoint, I enjoy reading someone else who's kind of found that niche and who's kind of explored their approach to the world in different ways and kind of found who they are through the fandom, through the friends they've made, through the experiences they've had. Because I mean, you and I have had very different experiences, but these there's a lot of commonality there too. Well, I, mean, I think as people, we have a lot of commonality, and a memoir is not. the same in my opinion as an autobiography an autobiography is about a famous person did this then they did this then they did this a memoir is a deeper personal journey and the way I came to become a writer uh, in my later life is just it's just astounding how comic fandom 
finally sort of saved me and gave me a creative haven. Mm-hmm. And that's what Sense of Wonder, my life in comic fandom, is about. So one other thing we have in common is the American Comic Book Chronicles. Oh, uh, yes, yes. Uh, your 1950s book was, uh, as I told you, like one of my favorites in the series. And um, I was delighted to get my 1990s book uh <laughs> completed and I and I and I love the like the 1990s book um as, as much as I liked your 70s book yeah we're both authors now we will both have well we'll have three I'll have two in the series the idea is just to, to write the best possible history so that there's you can go from the it'll eventually go from the late I believe there'll be a 30s volume someday yeah. Yeah. so it'll go from the very beginning of comics in 1933 or 4 modern comics all the way up to the end of the to the millennium at least and um, I think that's an, a, a very important tool and I'm, I, I'm amazed that John Morrow and editor Keith Davis took it on because it's an incredibly ambitious job but now it's going to be done I mean Keith's book uh, on the early 40s should be out before too long and then mine will follow on the second half of the 40s yeah Kurt's book is out in July he said it's already in hand. Wow. Kurt, Kurt Mitchell, I've already read Kurt's manuscript. It's tremendous. So people have a lot to look forward to there. Yeah, I talked to him a couple of weeks ago for the show, and his depth of knowledge is just incredible. Yeah, so we're very lucky that he did that, and um, and I was glad to be asked to do this other one so I could do two in the series. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I can't wait to read it. However, a... I'm going out of my mind with all the details, <laughs> the information, Oi. Well, I was telling Kurt, like, in some ways, running the 90s volume was easier, in some ways harder. All the material is easily at hand. Right. Almost everyone's available for interviews, and I have a ton of contemporary interviews from, from folks. There's one problem I don't have. It's getting either contemporary or modern people available. Right. It's right. more I have to navigate the politics of the stories. Yeah. So I heard, like, nine different stories about why Jim Shooter was fired from Valiant Comics. Exactly. And I had to kind of represent that in the, in the least judgmental way. Yeah, and you almost have too much information that's yeah. out there because the many of the you know I'm in the 40s, late 40s, all those people are pretty much gone now. I could have easily written almost 300,000 words on the decade. Uh-huh. I mean, there's whole sections that I left there, out. There could have been two for the 90s. Just a, there, there's a full book just on the black and white self-publishing boom. You're right, but this this is yeah exactly there could have been and and, and uh, you know these were meant to be um, references. They were meant to be. You know, surveys um, yeah, overviews, and yeah. overviews and part of your decision as the writer is what to leave out and what to put in mm-hmm. and it's not not easy is it no no and same thing with the Warren book I'm sure you had many many anecdotes you could have included oh yeah there were a ton of them and there are a lot of them in there and there's some pretty funny ones but of course everybody had a Jim Warren story and even my Kurtzman book I cut 30,000 words out of it mm. at the last minute to make it more concise. So, you know, these books could go on and on. How do you contain a person's life? You think 500 pages is a lot of pages, but with a creative individual who's been active, you really think you can put a person's life in 500 pages? I mean, could your life fit into a... If you really chronicled every little thing you did, no. So you have to make decisions on what to leave out. And I try to do that and not put in too much and uh, yet make them make them readable but informative. Well, thanks. This has been <laughs> definitely informative. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. These, well, were, these books are a challenge. So obviously the 40s book is next for you. You're thinking about your next biography subject? Or are you gonna I, I am, but it's, I can't talk about it. Yeah. But I have one. I keep saying I won't do another biography, but on the other hand, I just I really enjoy them. 
And when someone really asks me to do it, then I'm not going to say no um, because um, it's kind of my specialty, so people will recognize me for it. I think you've added a lot to our knowledge of the medium and the history of the art form. Well, I've learned a lot in the process, <laughs> and that's the fun thing. You know, you and I as authors, we get to learn about all these comics. You know, we've seen, you know, as a collector, you see, you, you, over, you miss a lot of things. You focus on the things you're into at that moment, and you miss other things. So when I write these books, I thoroughly get immersed in the work of the person I'm writing about. And to me, that's just what a gift that is. You know, the thing that I always think about when I'm reading a book that I've a comic that I've covered in my book is I'm now able to read it on multiple levels. I can read it as the work itself. Mm-hmm. I can read it in the context of the creator's careers. Mm-hmm. I can read it in the context of the time. I can read it in terms of the the work that came before and after and how that influenced each other. Mm-hmm. And it just is a much much richer reading experience. Well, and if there's one thing that I feel like I can add as a historian, it's exactly that to make you appreciate the full tapestry of how everything fits together well you do a great job at it jason but i appreciate uh, it um so and it's been good talking to you about all this stuff oh thank you